This is Rachel Fields and Nick Dodge with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. After more than four years heading up Democrats in the state assembly, Representative Gordon Heinz is stepping down. The assembly minority leader says he'll step down in about a month. Heinz was first elected to office in 2006 and took over the role as assembly Democratic leader in 2017. In a statement released earlier today, Heinz said that he has more confidence and optimism about the future of the Assembly Democrats than when he first stepped into the role of leader four years ago. Heinz says he wants to spend more time with his family and is up for re-election next November. Michael Gableman's lawsuit against Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway and Green Bay Mayor Eric Genrick has been delayed until at least next month, the Associated Press reports. The lawsuit, which called for the mayors to either sit with the Gableman team to discuss the election or face jail, was first called for earlier this month in Waukesha County. Waukesha County Circuit Judge Ralph Ramirez pushed the hearing to next month to hear arguments in another case filed by Attorney General Josh Call. Call claims that Gableman's subpoenas are unenforceable and illegal because Gableman wants to conduct the interviews in private instead of in an open hearing. Gableman's taxpayer-funded investigation has been criticized by both Democrats as well as Wisconsin Republican Senator Kathy Bernier of Lake Halley for containing, quote, made-up things, end quote. In other court news, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected an appeal from a conservative think tank over Governor Tony Evers' decision to exclude the group from press briefings, the Associated Press reports. The John K. McIver Institute for Public Policy first filed the lawsuit in 2019 after they claimed that Governor Evers violated its staffers' constitutional rights to free speech and freedom of the press. A federal court rejected the group's arguments last year, saying that the group can still report on Evers without being invited to his press briefings. Former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker joined the Institute's bid for a higher court review earlier this year, saying that Governor Evers' decision allows for censorship. The appeals court ruled that Evers' media access criteria was reasonable and had no obligation to grant access for every news outlet. The Wisconsin Office of Rural Health has released the results of a poll that asked rural Wisconsin hospitals how they handled COVID-19 mandates. Of the 33 rural hospitals surveyed, 22 have stated that they do have vaccine mandates in place, while 11 do not. According to the report, rural hospitals instituting vaccine mandates have lost a median 2% of their staff. Hospitals without mandates, however, report that anywhere from 14 to 45% of their staff are not yet vaccinated for the virus. In one comment to the poll, rural hospitals gave multiple reasons for not enacting a mandate, from vaccine hesitancy in rural areas to not being able to lose more staff due to staffing shortages. A handful of school board news today. Mary Jo Walters has dropped out of the race for an open seat on the Madison School Board. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Walters is dropping out for, quote, many personal reasons, end quote, and has received pushback after she made anti-transgender comments on Facebook, stating that she is, quote, transophobic, end quote. 
After Walters first announced she was running for the seat last week, transgender artist and activist Shepard Janeway decided to challenge Walters for the seat. Janeway says that they will continue their campaign for the seat, which is being vacated after Chris Caruzzi announced they are not running for re-election. They will appear on the ballot as Shepard Joyner. Also also in school board news, board member Ananda Marilli announced today that she will not seek re-election. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Marilli stated the emotional toll of COVID-19 influenced her decision not to run for re-election. A newly proposed Madison ordinance would bar businesses in the city from breeding or selling animals for medical or chemical experimentation, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The proposal was introduced by Madison Alder Lindsay Lemmer as a preventative measure to keep beagle breeders out of the city. Lemmer says she is not aware of any business in Madison currently breeding animals for experimentation. The ordinance would not apply to any state employees working on state land, such as those at UW-Madison. UW-Madison does use animals for research and does some of its own breeding. The proposal was co-sponsored by Alder Tag Evers and will be heard at the Board of Health for Madison and Dane County on January 5th. The bill is anticipated to return to the Council for a vote on January 18th. And now, on to today's top stories. The Madison Children's Museum hosted a COVID-19 vaccination clinic today. It's still ongoing until 7 p.m. There, Madison families can get vaccinated, then have some time for play afterwards. WORT reporter Ben Kern has more. On the north side of the Capitol building lies a pretty unique location for a vaccination clinic. For today only, the Madison Children's Museum is hosting a vaccination site until 7 p.m. Families can go to the large building on Hamilton Street and get any of the three doses of the vaccine for free. This includes children ages 5 to 11 who have recently been approved for vaccination by the FDA and CDC. The energy in the building was high as dozens of Madison families and citizens looked around and played in the facility while they awaited for their shots. Jonathan Zairov, the Children's Museum Director of Marketing and Communications, says the building is an ideal spot for families to receive something as solemn and sometimes daunting as a vaccine. Kids have an incentive to come in and get vaccinated, which of course they might feel a little bit nervous about or resistant to do because they get to play here. Uh, and the whole second floor is open for them, so they come in, they get vaccinated, and then they can stick around and play. Anyone can sign up online or walk in to receive a vaccination. After filing some paperwork and checking in with the front desks, people are led up the stairs to the waiting area, which also happens to be a massive floor of crafts, toys, and other fun activities. Once your name is called, you walk into the clinic room, receive your vaccine, and then wait and play for 10 to 15 minutes afterward before you can leave. Zarov says the building is perfect for larger families to have appointments. It makes it easier for parents with uh, a couple of kids to come in here and you know one kid can be playing while the other gets vaccinated which is a lot harder in other locations and then just the more you do it in the more places the more uh, access there is the more people get vaccinated. Zarov mentions that even 10 or more of the building staff members got vaccinated within the museum. It was the Children's Museum's second time hosting a vaccination clinic. The first was in November, when roughly 62 children got their vaccine. I had an opportunity to speak with some visitors at the museum today. It was super easy to sign up, and I'm on the mailing list, so I just got the email, and I had been looking for a booster appointment and hadn't had much luck um, since it opened up to everyone. So it was nice that it was really smooth and easy, and now I get to do some origami, which is really fun. <laughs> uh, this is way more fun than it was the first couple of times. 
but I'm just really grateful that they had this program going on today so we could come do this. It's what I can do to help protect them is to get vaccinated, so I'm really happy that I, I have the opportunity. Uh, it felt just, uh, just like, it just felt like a little pinch in that stuff. Uh, the sign-up process was a little trickier than I thought, and I still kind of got to hunt and find places to look for it, but I just spent some time on Google, you'll figure it out. The kids love it here. Uh, it kind of takes some of the trauma away from uh, the vaccine, just uh, having them be able to play here before and after. It's a, it's a really nice place here. So it was nice for me because he's 16, so he was the first 16-year-old actually um, boosted here today, they told us upstairs, which was really nice. And just going into the holidays to know that um, we're more protected as we gather with our families. I feel that we're fighting the COVID pandemic as a team. And uh, if you want to be a part of the team, you have to be a team player. And that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to encourage as many vaccinations for as many as we can. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Ben Kern. The Wisconsin Supreme Court's decision to redraw the state's voting district maps using a least change approach is raising concerns of Hispanic and Latinx voting rights advocates. They're worried the new maps are based on inaccurate census data. Jonah Chester of the Wisconsin News Connection has more. The Wisconsin Supreme Court's decision to make few changes when redrawing the state's voting maps is raising new concerns that the new districts may not adequately represent the growing number of Hispanic and Latinx voters. The court has said any alterations to the maps will be based on population shifts and certain legal principles like the Voting Rights Act. The Latinx community is Wisconsin's largest and fastest growing minority group, according to the 2020 census. But Christine Newman-Ortiz of the Milwaukee-based group Voces de la Frontera worries the census undercounted these residents during the Trump administration. Both the pandemic was a serious issue uh, for the census count, as well as, you know, the impact of a very hostile administration. Hispanic and Latinx voters played a major role in delivering Wisconsin to Joe Biden in the 2020 election. A Washington Post exit poll found that about 60 percent of this group in Wisconsin cast ballots for Biden. That's in a state he won by just over 20,000 votes, or less than 1% of all ballots cast. In adopting a least-change approach to redistricting, the state's high court handed a win to Republican lawmakers. The current maps were drafted in 2011 when Republicans controlled the legislature and governor's office and have been criticized for favoring GOP candidates. Newman-Ortiz says keeping those maps largely intact means Latinx voters may not have as strong a voice in Madison or on Capitol Hill. Reinforcing this gerrymandered map, it means that the issues that, that Latinos care about deeply and that are broadly supported are, are going to be continue to be obstructed. Kathy Fong with the group Common Cause says once voting maps hit the courts, it becomes more difficult for citizens to weigh in on the process. Speaking at a redistricting seminar, she notes the best way to influence the process was through a ballot. In some states where you have uh, judicial elections or there's a way to influence uh, the judges that are chosen, it's making sure that there is a tremendous amount of voter education. Wisconsin Supreme Court justices are elected to 10-year terms. All other judges in the state run for re-election every six years. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org.
It's now 6.18 p.m. and you are listening to the live local news on WORT. Drug overdose deaths rise across the state. With 1,227 deaths in 2020, Dane County Board Supervisor Anthony Gray is looking to introduce a new resolution to help make drugs safer. WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Gray today on his proposed resolution. Fentanyl is an additive to drugs such as heroin, cocaine, and other opioids that cannot be seen, smelled, or tasted. And because of its extreme potency, only a small amount is required for the substance to become fatal. As drug overdoses rise across both the state of Wisconsin and across the country, a new proposed resolution is looking to help prevent overdose deaths. With me today is Anthony Gray, Dane County Board Supervisor, who plans on introducing a new resolution to make fentanyl testing strips accessible to residents in Dane County at this Thursday's county board meeting. Anthony, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. No, I appreciate you uh, paying attention to this important issue. So starting things off, how will this resolution get the testing strips into the hands of Dane County residents? Well, we'll still have to work with the Madison and Dane Health Department on the logistics of distribution. But fundamentally, We're trying to save lives here. As your introduction mentioned, this is a substance that you have no way of knowing whether or not it's there. Obviously, we are supportive and and believe in abstinence for, uh, for illicit substances, but we also don't think there should be a death penalty if you have an addiction that you do not yet have under control. So how do these testing strips work? How can people use them to detect fentanyl? They are very cheap. They are cents for each one, a few cents, and they're strips of paper. And they dip that strip of paper into water and to whatever substance they're trying to test. And if there is the presence of fentanyl, that strip will turn a color. Perhaps you'll get a line like a pregnancy test. So it's a really, really simple test. But the problem with fentanyl is it's a synthetic opiate, and it is so powerful that the smallest of amount can kill you. So that means one use could be deadly. So you mentioned that these strips are quite cheap to make. Do you have any idea where these strips would be coming from? I don't know where they're manufactured. I know that there's a number of places around the country that do it. There's a handful of other cities who have programs similar to this because it's not just Wisconsin that is losing so many young people to the scourge of opiate addiction. This is really a national problem. And during the pandemic, we, of course, and rightfully so, have been focusing a lot of our time, energy, and effort on the pandemic virus, but it's important to remember that for folks with the mental disease of addiction, the stress of the pandemic makes their pre-existing condition worse. And so it's, it's, it actually has gotten worse over the course of 
COVID-19. So you mentioned that few other cities have been trying this as well. I'm going to circle back to that a little bit later, but just as a baseline, what's the current situation regarding fentanyl here in Dane County? The current situation is that they're in the process in our legislature of making sure it's a one-line bill to make sure that fentanyl testing strips are not considered drug paraphernalia. There was some concern about that in the state of Wisconsin. So there's a bipartisan bill in the assembly now to make sure that the testing strips are not considered drug paraphernalia. And once that bill goes through and becomes a law and gets signed by the governor, that's where the resolution for Dane County would kick in. And it would give us the opportunity to save lives of individuals whose addictions have them caught up in the throes. It it, it really is an extension of an effort to treat substance abuse and addiction as a mental health disease as opposed to a criminal problem. And I think that's the only way we're ever going to get it under control. When you try and criminalize mental illness, it, it really just has the very worst impacts on those who are already afflicted. Um, you really have to treat it as the mental disease that it is. It's a health it's a health crisis as opposed to a criminal one. The Wisconsin Department of Health Services reports that there were 123 opioid overdoses deaths in Dane County in 2020, which is the second highest in the state next to Milwaukee County. How will your resolution help to prevent those overdoses? It'll help to prevent them by treating addiction as a mental illness as opposed to a crime, right? Obviously, we would prefer that all substance abuse addicts abstain from any substances, but that isn't reality. That isn't where we find ourselves, nor is that how mental illnesses tend to work. You can't wish them away. And in the interim, while we're trying to make sure that we're creating treatment options for these individuals, we need to make sure that they don't get one bad batch of whatever their substance of choice is and drop dead, which is exactly what's been happening all around the country. As fentanyl has begun flooding into the country, it's cheap. They can mix it with any other substance you can think of. Initially, it was primarily heroin. Apparently, it's now being mixed into cocaine, being mixed into ecstasy, being mixed into all sorts of other substances. And one dose of the wrong amount of fentanyl can and will kill you. there's, There's no room for a mental health approach. There's no room for remediation if you're dead. And so the goal here, quite literally, is to save lives. So you mentioned earlier that other cities have tried resolutions like this. What other cities have tried this and what results came out of those cities? Well, my understanding is that both San Francisco and Portland have are two of the larger cities that have programs that distribute testing strips. And it has made a substantive difference in the percentages of opioid overdose death because it creates an option for those who are trying to quit to have a way of knowing whether or not this particular batch in front of them is going to take their life. So what we're really trying to do 
is move away from a criminal perspective on this and move it towards a healthcare perspective, which is really the only way we're ever going to address these problems. In your press release, you say that we need to do what we can to help get people treatment. Is this sort of a first step towards more steps to be taken in the county to address addiction? And what else does the county and state, for that matter, need to do to address this issue? Well, ultimately, what they need to do is have what's called treatment on demand. They need to have any time a drug addict has an opportunity you know, decides they want to get clean, they need to have some place to go where they can receive the kind of mental health care that's required to kick addiction. It's, it's, once you're addicted, it is a monster to try and get yourself not addicted. And so once you have the will, there needs to be a way, there needs to be access to on-demand treatment. Having said that, what this does is make sure that you live long enough to get to on-demand treatment, if that makes any sense to you. Do you have any final thoughts on the subject that you'd like to share? Only that I think it's important that we be compassionate. You know, the goal of public policy really is to make substantive changes in people's lives. And if we have someone who has the mental illness and addiction, but is working to try and struggle to beat it, we as a society really should be doing everything we can to help assist them in that process. And this, I think, is an important step along with treatment on demand to moving in that direction. I've been speaking with Anthony Gray, Dane County Board Supervisor, who plans to introduce his resolution at this Thursday's County Board meeting. Anthony, thank you again for talking with me today. Yes, thank you to WORT. I appreciate it. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Forward Lookout looks at housing insecurity in Madison. Bridging the Gap looks at gap years through the centuries. And the Monday Movie Review looks at a holiday film and a West Side Story remake. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. The time is now 6.33, and you are listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. Normally at this time, WORT's Dylan Brogan and Forward Lookout's Brenda Conkle preview what's happening in local government. But this week, Brogan interviews Conkle on all the recent developments regarding housing insecurity in our community. In addition to running the Forward Lookout blog, Conkle is a board member of Occupy Madison, the group responsible for creating two tiny house villages in town. She's also the director of the nonprofit Madison Area Care for the Homeless, which has been majorly involved in other initiatives like the new cabin campground on Dairy Drive. That's right. It's Monday, and we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com. But today we're doing something a little different than our usual rundown of what's happening in city and county government and important agenda items. We're, we're going to talk about uh, an issue that Brenda is very familiar with, not only just in terms of years of experience, but also 
she somehow uh, has become quite the authority on these issues by her service to the city and through her employment. So maybe we'll just start there, Brenda. I mean, how long have you been working on issues involving homelessness in this community? You know, I was always tangentially involved in them, but when um, there was the protests and the, the Occupy movement started and there was the 100 people that were sleeping on East Washington Avenue back in, I believe it was 2010. Um, that's when I first got involved and um, met a bunch of people who were homeless and were staying there and had no place to go when it got shut down and uh, just started trying to help solve the problem individual by individual and started seeing all the gaps in the systems and all the all the um, just ways that the system fails people and uh, decided that this was something that I was going to work harder on. Things are perhaps a little bit better in terms of working towards solutions, but it also uh, just reporting on these issues myself. It seems like uh, the the maybe there's added attention, and and but we're gone from ignoring the problem to short-term solutions. So maybe you can talk about those short-term solutions. COVID has been, you know, both good and bad for a lot of reasons. But one of the the better things about COVID is that there's been a lot of federal money that has come to try to solve homelessness in a different kind of way. And so um, we are seeing a lot of money get poured into the system. Um, We're looking at a new men's shelter. Um, We helped, the county helped build a tiny house village um, back in last October. Um, We had, um, you know, the hotels to housing program. There's been a lot more rapid rehousing and, money that has gone into the system to help the services be better. So all of that's super great. Unfortunately, more people have become homeless. And, um, you know, we've also like run into bigger obstacles because people don't want to be in congregate shelters um, during COVID. So maybe you can explain the difference between uh, these these um, tiny villages and what's happening on Dairy Drive. The Occupy Madison villages are a little bit different. We um, modeled them off of some of the things that we saw when we went out west. Um, We visited Portland and Seattle and some other places and looked at tiny house villages there. Um, And that was probably back in 2014. Although, as you say, I get my years a little mixed up. It's been a while. Um, But anyways, we went out there and we really wanted to have self-government be you know, having the people who live there make the decisions uh, about the village. So they're really more of a cooperative um, and the villages, the villages are really run by the people who live there. There's just a few of us who are um, who assist with with lots of things to, to help the organization run. But we really want to make sure that the residents there are making decisions. So we have one on 304 North Third Street and that has uh, we'll have nine people in it soon. Um, we just finished all the renovations there. And then we have the other one at 1901 Aberg Avenue, which is the old Wiggy's Bar. And that one um, has about 25 people there at the moment. Um, in the end, there will be 22 people there, but there were 30 people there during um, during the height of COVID. Um, and we're, we're slowly um, making sure that everybody there is getting into other opportunities or, you know, is moving on for whatever reason. But um, eventually we'll have 22 houses there when we finish the project there. Um, that's a lot different than what the Dairy Day Drive project is. The Dairy Drive project is really um, a fully staffed model. Um, we have three full-time um, social workers who work there, as well as um, we have two additional people. One's a maintenance facilities person, and the other one works on just doing things like 
laundry and donations and and uh, trips to the grocery store and um, lots of things that are around campers needs. Um, so that's got five people there. Plus on evenings and weekends, we staff that as well. Occupy Madison, zero staff. Dairy Drive is about, it's at least five full-time people there every week, plus the weekends and evenings folks. We've also heard uh, a lot about Rindell Park where people were uh, pitching tents and, and living there. And there there seemed to be a lot of people there at, uh, when the, the weather was warmer. And the city definitely didn't want that to be permanent, uh, whether the campers did or not. And they were threatened with a essentially a eviction, right? Because they weren't charging yeah. them with, it's against city ordinance. They're sort of just allowed to do it. So, but that uh, has basically come to an end and most people have either, have found another solution or are taking advantage of some COVID money that's going to pay for hotel rooms or the, or the dairy drive location. So is that, I don't think that was necessarily um, predicted to be the outcome, right? Has that gone better than, than, than maybe you <laughs> thought it would a couple months ago? Yeah, it, it's it's interesting when we built our um, first the second tiny house village over um, at 1901 Abrig Avenue. We um, it was during when McPike Park was being shut down, which is the last park that the city just shut down. And at that point, we did most of the people that moved into our village were from McPike Park. This time, um, as we're setting up Dairy Drive, everybody came from Rindell Park. Um, and so I've been able to go through both of those processes in two different kinds of ways. And um, I would say that Rhino Park went a lot better. Um, I think people were treated like people were given some options. They could either go to Dairy Drive. They got an opportunity to come take a look at it. And then if they liked it, they were offered a, a cabin there. Um, and if they weren't interested, then they were offered a hotel room. So. We tried to leave it up to the choice of the people who were at Rindell Park, as opposed to McPike Park was just like getting shut down, get out of here, right? And so I think that that was a much better model. I'll say it didn't go perfectly, but it should, certainly went better than probably most people expected it to. Um, there was up to 100 folks at Rindell Park at one point, and at least uh, about 80 of them have gotten into a different housing choice. Um, and at Dairy Drive, we've already got three people who are looking at getting into housing. All right, Brenda Conkle, we'll, uh, we'll talk about what's happening in local government next week. How does that sound? That sounds good. All right. Appreciate your time. Yep. On tonight's edition of The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson recalls the English radical farm workers movement dubbed the Swing Riots in 1830. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time, for our brothers and our sisters up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women standing up and standing strong. December marks the peak of the trials of the swing rioters of 1830-1831. The swing riots occurred after a 50-year decline in living standards and working conditions. The end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815 increased unemployment. The last straw was the poor harvest and the introduction of threshing machines, which threw hundreds of thousands out of harvest work. There were nearly 1,500 episodes in all. The farm workers demanded higher wages and a reduced tithe payment to the church. To enforce their demand for work, local groups formed in rural counties, primarily in southern and eastern England, and destroyed threshing machines. 2,000 protesters were brought to trial. 252 were sentenced to death, but only 19 were actually hanged. 644 were imprisoned, and 481 sent to penal colonies, mostly Australia. 
Most were farm workers, but there were also rural artisans, shoemakers, carpenters, wheelwrights, blacksmiths, and cobblers. Many of the protesters who were sent to penal colonies had their sentences remitted in 1835. The first threshing machine was destroyed on Saturday night, August 28, 1830. The threshers were made of wood with a few metal parts. Typically, the metal parts were removed and destroyed and the rest set on fire. By the third week of October, more than 100 machines had been destroyed in East Kent. They destroyed workhouses and tithe barns as well. Workhouses were the parish-run places where the indigent were sent to do hard manual labor for free in return for room and board. The farm workers targeted three sources of their misery. The tithe system required payments to the Anglican Church, often large and strictly enforced, paid even by non-church members. The poor law guardians, who sometimes abused their power to distribute aid, and the rich tenant farmers, who had been progressively lowering wages while introducing labor-reducing machines. Another factor which hurt the rural poor were the enclosure laws. Between 1770 and 1830, about six million acres of common land was enclosed, that is, taken away from the use of all to raise their animals and grow produce and given to large landowners. This new system may have been sustainable during boom times, but then the wars ended in 1815, grain prices plummeted, and there was an oversupply of labor. The name Swing Riots was derived from Captain Swing, the fictitious name often signed to the threatening letters sent to farmers, magistrates, parsons, and others. He was the mythical figurehead of the movement. Swing was either a reference to the group act of swinging the stick used in hand threshing, or a morbid reference to what would happen to the rebels if caught. Tactics varied from county to county, but typically threatening letters would be sent, often signed by Captain Swing. The letters would call for a rise in wages, a cut in the tithe, and for the destruction of the threshing machines, or the people would take matters into their own hands. If the warnings weren't heeded, farm workers often 200 to 400, would gather, threaten the local oligarchs with dire consequences. The threshing machines would be broken, workhouses and tithe barns attacked, and the rioters would disperse or move to the next village. Despite the slogan, bread or blood, only one person was killed during the riots. One of the rioters was shot by a soldier or a farmer. The rioters' only intent was property damage to pressure for needed changes in the system. The swing riots eventually affected a temporary increase in wages, and the parsons and some landlords reduced tithes and rents. But many reneged on the deals, and the unrest increased. Many people called for political reform, but the landowners were severely threatened by the riots and invoked harsh punishment. The riots led to modest reforms in Parliament, extending the franchise to 7% of men and passage of anti-corruption laws. Some credit it with launching modern democracy in England. It likely helped shape the Chartist movement, England's first mass movement of rural and urban workers, started in 1838. Today, at least one of those hung is still remembered. William Whitbourne, also known by his mother's name of Smith, which appears on the headstone. He was the only man in Berkshire, a small town near London, hung for his part in the riots. In January of 2015, descendant Rod Holmes took his turn reciting from memory the biblical phrase on the gravestone, though it had worn away long ago. He recalled the unjust punishment of his ancestor, whose account had been passed on to him. And that is our story for today. For WORT's The Past Isn't Past, I'm Harry Richardson.
It's now 6.46 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. This week on Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yen explores gap years, a phenomenon popularized by Gen Z with centuries-old origins. An increasing number of students have decided to take a break from their studies during the pandemic. With school being moved online, many students have decided not to sit at home watching recorded lectures and attended Zoom meetings. Instead, they turn to part-time jobs to support their families or use this time to take a mental health break. This break is often known as a gap year, a year in between studies to pursue other goals. Before the pandemic, students take gap years as an opportunity to travel to different places and partake in programs that help develop their career goals. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the generational differences between Gen Z and other generations. The number of students taking gap years has been increasing. While gap years started gaining popularity in the last decade, the concept is not new. According to the Gap Year Association, the origin of gap years can be traced back to 17th and 18th century Great Britain. Wealthy adolescent men in Great Britain would go on what's called the Grand Tour, a trip that took them around Europe. This was considered an essential process in becoming a gentleman. After World War II, men would be conscripted at the age of 18 and would join the armed forces for two years before continuing further education. These men would return for their education after having learned how to be independent of their parents. Nowadays, students use gap years to travel the world, participate in volunteer opportunities, and learn how to be independent. You know, like what's so bad about taking one year to take the time to like figure out who I am outside of school. In this week's edition, I talked with Kaylin McGlynn, recent UW-Madison graduate who did a gap year before her freshman year. Why did you decide to do a gap year? A girl who was a grade above me in high school who I was good friends with was telling me that she was going to take a gap year and so she's going to go to Germany. And I was like, that's so cool. I had never even heard of that. And so I brought it up to my parents and they were like, no way. Like, we don't want you lacking for a year because then you'll never go to college. So then I kind of had to really develop a plan for what I would do with my gap year, show it to my parents and like prove to them that I would actually be doing something. But like the main thing I was like, even if I go to school, I don't know what I want to do at all. So like, what's the point of rushing it if I don't know? what I want to do. And what did you do during your gap year? Um, I did a lot of different things. For all of the fall, I was going to go to Costa Rica. When I first got there, I worked at a children's daycare, an assistant to the daycare, which is really nice because I got to work with really young kids. And I liked it because getting there, my Spanish wasn't very good, but I was on like the same level of Spanish as three-year-olds and four-year-olds. So I could at least like communicate with them in very simple terms. And then while I was there, I had a lot of friends that were moving on to different projects projects and I went with them to the turtle conservation project in Ostianal and that was the coolest one ever to me basically like got to research turtles we walked the beaches at night you know protecting the eggs from poachers because that was a big issue was there for the big arribada which is like when all the turtles come to the shore and lay their eggs all at once so that was just really cool to like see the conservation efforts there and be a part of it all of the spring basically I backpacked around Europe I worked at a hostel 
school for a little bit. I helped teach English in Italy at a high school. I worked as a part of an ocean conservation program in Portugal where I got to like scuba dive and help clean up trash off the ocean floor. A lot of just like traveling too. What was something you discovered about yourself during your gap year? I think more than anything, I discovered that I was like capable of so much being a female traveling alone, but like it was not as hard as I expected. So yeah, I figured out 18 years old. I figured out that I was quite capable of a lot of things on my own. Um, If I just like breathe through it, took the time, patiently figure it out. And I would say like, secondly, the big one, not to have so much stranger danger. And like so many random people that I met along the way were super helpful, helped me figure out how to get places, carried my bags for me. So definitely just learning to not be afraid of others. I mean, you mentioned that your parents didn't really agree to it in the first place. So what made them change their perspective? I was the oldest daughter, so I was kind of like the first one going through everything, going through all the steps of, you know, and so they were kind of like maybe nervous to experiment with their first child or something. I don't know. And I think that they were worried that like if I went off the track for a little bit that I would never find my way back. And But I think I feel like anything with kids nowadays and they're like, mom and dad, like I have a structured plan. I haven't figured out. I'm not just winging it. That was a big part. And they finally gave in, but it was definitely hesitant. What impact did going on a gap year have on your college experience? I just, I met so many fascinating people. I don't know. I just met so many cool people on totally different paths who all were to me cool and successful in their own way. So when I got to school, I didn't have that pressure that I feel like a lot of people feel like I've got to, you know, do college perfectly. I have to get really good grades. I have to get, and I have to get a job. So like still today, like a lot of my really close friends, you know, still a very structured life post-college and my life is not like that at all. But I feel like I'm at peace with it. Like I'm not stressed about it because I'm just okay with life's path being wonky and mysterious. Because I was thinking about generational differences one thing that I think my parents have noticed over time, my parents have both like very like typical successful careers, but like neither of them were really ever satisfied with that. You know, not they hated it, but like they didn't love it. And I think that they would be so happy for both me and my sister to find a career that sustains us, but also that we enjoy and can be happy in for a long period of time. As we continue to reflect on our life journey, perhaps it could be beneficial to jump out of our structured pathways sometimes. You might be surprised at what you find out along the way. For WORT and Bridging the Gap, I'm Teresa Yen. On today's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies. One, a fun holiday kids film on Netflix. The other, the long-awaited Steven Spielberg remake of West Side Story. You may find this hard to believe, but long ago, nobody knew about Christmas. It started with a boy called Nicholas and a summons from the king. That was clip from the trailer for A Boy Called Christmas, co-written and directed by Gil Keenan. It's based on the best-selling book of the same name by Matt Haig. This is a pretty good Santa Claus origin story with a A-list cast and beautiful special effects. It's a mostly light-hearted film with some surprisingly dark patches. Our story has a fine framing device with Maggie Smith playing Aunt Ruth babysitting three young kids on Christmas Eve. The kids are mourning their mom's death. Ruth tells the story to comfort them. The kids are a tough audience and the story starts grimly in a poor region of Finland long ago before people knew about Christmas. Mikhail Husman is a single dad currently worried about being eaten by a bear with his young son Nicholas 
a great role for Henry Waffle. They escape. Then they are called before the king, along with other brave and unlucky residents. They are asked, what does the kingdom need? We get a bit of python-like witty answers. A healthcare system. A living wage. The king, a wigged Jim Broadbent, sadly, doesn't take the bait. He says the kingdom needs hope and offers a reward to anyone who can bring it back. Nicholas's dad is soon off with a crew of hardened men. Nicholas is to be taken care of by his aunt, Kristen Wig, a pretty effective villain. She kicks Nicholas out of the house. Nicholas, undeterred, discovers a map his mom left. His mom had once been to Elfland, where everyone was happy. So Nicholas sets off to find his dad, convinced he can bring back hope to the kingdom. Nicholas learns some hard truths, but also finds some happiness in his purpose. A fun holiday tale with a lot of heart, beautifully filmed, and an exceptional cast. It just started playing on Netflix. Now for a retelling of a classic film based on a Broadway musical. never seen you before. I'm a Puerto Rican. Is that okay? That was a clip from the trailer for the long-anticipated retelling of West Side Story directed by Steven Spielberg. The film is technically well done with a fine cast. It reimagines the 1961 movie based on the Broadway play from 1957. The new version has kept much of the original music and themes, but added a few touches. There's a nice part for Rita Marino as shopkeeper Valentina. Marino played Anita in the 1961 movie. The original story is a retelling of Romeo and Juliet. In West Side Story, our protagonists start a fateful relationship. They are affiliated with two rival gangs and antagonistic ethnic groups. Maria, Rachel Zegler, just arrived in New York. Her brother, Bernardo, David Alvarez, heads the Puerto Rican gang, the Sharks. Her love at first sight is Tony Ansel Lagort, the former head of the Jets, an Italian-American gang. Tony has reformed after a year in prison for nearly beating a rival to death. He has been frightened by his own violence. Valentina has given him a job and a place to stay. She has also become his friend and mentor. Tony tries to keep the peace, but sadly the lover's relationship aggravates the seemingly inevitable showdown. There are also some great song and dance numbers. Near the beginning, there's a lively ensemble song and dance by the Sharks and Friends. La Borinquana, the Puerto Rican national anthem. Later we see the crackling with tension dance number at the gym between the two rival groups. The original's big songs are still here. Maria, Tonight, America, a point-counterpoint on how free Puerto Ricans feel in New York, and I Feel Pretty, sung by Maria. The screenplay by Tony Kushner sets the story in a specific time and place to exceptional effect. The other work behind the camera is exceptional as well. Choreography by Justin Peck. Cinematography by Janusz Kaminski. Production design by Adam Stockhausen. Editors Sarah Brosher and Michael Kahn. And composers Jeannie Tessori and David Newman. In a fine cast, Rhea Da Bose as Anita, Bernardo's girl with her own dreams, and Rachel Zegler as Anita are the most outstanding. Finally, this new version should inspire us to see the original. For WORT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Ben Kern. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, Dylan Brogan, and Teresa Yen. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. 
Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.